Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Hope you're having a great day out there wherever you might be. We've got another interesting two-part series. This time it's about America's strategic defense in nuclear weapons and who has the authority to use our country's stockpile. We had a terrific guest join us, Professor Alex Wellerstein of Restricted Data, the Nuclear Secrecy Blog, and the Stevens Institute of Technology. Professor Wellerstein is also an author with a new book coming out in early 2021 titled Restricted Data, the History of Nuclear Secrecy in the United States. But before we get to all that, a little history to set the stage. It's been just over 75 years since the United States used nuclear weapons to end World War II, closing out the Pacific Theater, one of the bloodiest clashes between two nations in modern warfare. This would mark the first and only time nuclear weapons have been used during wartime. The first bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, Japan, August 6, 1945, from a B-29 superfortress called the Enola Gay. The second bomb was dropped on Nagasaki on August 9th of the same year from another B-29 called Boxcar. Then on August 15th, Japan surrendered. The official signing for that took place on September 2nd aboard the USS Missouri in front of General Richard K. Sutherland. When it was all said and done, it is estimated that the death toll in Japan from the nuclear bombs was between 129,000 and 226,000. In addition to stopping the war, these atomic bombs ushered in a new era, bringing much concern about their destructive power, a fact we still live with today. Even after our standoff Cold War with the Soviet Union, we still have tension with other nuclear powers such as China, North Korea, and yes, once again, Russia. And that brings us to what we're talking about today. Who has the authority to use the United States nuclear arsenal if or when the need arises? Well, that power more or less resides with one person in the United States, the president. Now, that seems like an incredible responsibility to place on anyone, but there is a rich history underlying how we got there. Coming up is part one of two. We now cut to our interview with Professor Alex Wellerstein when I ask him about President Truman's evolution of permission when it came to nuclear weapons during World War II. We hope you enjoy. Professor, if you could walk us through that World War II time where President Truman was aware but didn't specifically say, go do it, to the part where he separates the military from the the private sector, this early phase of permissions for for nuclear warfare. Sure. I mean, contrary to most of the stories we tell about Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Truman doesn't give some order. He doesn't make some big decision. He's very peripheral. He's aware of what's going on. He's he's not trying to stop it or anything like that. But he's, his permission is not really sought nor needed. His advisors sort of feel like if they keep him in the loop on the plans that were already in motion, that that's sort of their, their duty. This changes on August 10th, so the day after Nagasaki, General Groves, the head of the Manhattan Project that made the atomic bombs, sent a memo to the chief of staff saying they had another bomb that they were working on and they were going to have it ready to use in about a week. And at this point, Truman intervenes and he says, no more bombs are to be dropped without explicit presidential authorization. And he tells his cabinet that day that he gave an order to stop atomic bombings and he gives them sort of an interesting reason. He says that it was uh, the idea of killing uh, another 100,000 people was too horrible. And he actually cites uh, killing all those kids as a sort of problem. And this is the moment that I put if, if you want to say, when does the president become really important to the question of nuclear use? Um, it's August 10th. It's after Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It's Truman sort of asserting a new power that 
previously hadn't been asserted. And he, over the course of 1946 through 1948, this is sort of informal and it's sort of the the power on the ground per se. It's not in doctrine. The Atomic Energy Act of 1947 basically says that the, and, and Truman supported this, that the only the president can, can transfer the nuclear fissile material, the bomb fuel from the civilian now agency that makes it, the Atomic Energy Commission, to the Department of Defense. That doesn't mean that it's not about who orders the use of a weapon, but it's a sort of indirect way to do that. And in 1948 is when the National Security Council, with Truman's backing, um, actually codifies that in the event of war, that it would has to be the president's decision and nobody else's to use nuclear weapons. Over the course of Truman's administration, what you see is after he takes this power in August 10th, he basically doesn't want to give it up. He wants the president to be very uh, instrumental. He doesn't really want to use nuclear weapons, it seems. He wants to make them and stockpile them, but he's very wary about the military's uh, potential to misuse them and very wary about even giving them physical access to these weapons. That's a, a very strange separation of the two powers there because historically the, the military, the president wouldn't necessarily give them the specific battlefield objectives and tell them what to use versus what not to use. If there was something available in the arsenal, the military would use it to accomplish the ultimate objective. But this represented sort of this taking away of a weapon that was for the first time used by the U.S. military. So when did that begin to change? Because I understand this was literally separating the nuclear stockpile from the devices or whatever it was that would deliver it. So when did that begin to change? It is a strange relationship, and it's one that is sort of brewing in World War II itself. The question about whether the military should have autonomy over tactics to any ends whatsoever. And there were people even surrounding the firebombing of Japan, who were unclear about that, uh, who were unsure. The Secretary of War, for example, Henry Stimson, really was not a fan of the firebombing tactics, but found that that was considered an operational problem and not a political problem. And so he had no input on it. And so the bomb is a really curious place where those kinds of distinctions get pulled out. And Truman is certainly by 1948, uh, but arguably a lot earlier, certainly on the side that the use of nuclear weapons is not a military decision, that it's a major policy decision. And in terms of when it changes, basically at the end of the Truman administration, at the very end, they come up with an, an agreement where the Atomic Energy Commission can give these weapons or their cores to the military with the president's authorization, under the, with the understanding that they are, the military is not being authorized to use these weapons, that these are just being sort of stored with them in the event that they need to be used. And Truman and his whole presidency only authorizes nine nuclear weapons to be uh, transferred to the military. So it's a very small number of their total stockpile, which grows quite large by this point. The, the real shift of American nuclear weapons into the physical hands of the military happens under Eisenhower. And by the end of the Eisenhower administration, something like 90% of all American nuclear weapons are in the hands of the Department of Defense. And that becomes sort of a routine transfer that stops meaning as much as it would have in the Truman years. And this is partially because of the change in the in this sort of global situation where Eisenhower and the military are much more afraid of a uh, attack by the Soviet Union or a surprise attack. By this point, the Soviets have nuclear weapons and also changes in the technologies of the weapons. 
it stops being an imaginable thing to sort of separate out just the nuclear parts of the weapons. You start getting weapons that are uh, much more complicated and the idea that you would sort of be able to make a neat technological distinction uh, between the sort of civilian and military parts of it uh, breaks down. Well, and this is where President Eisenhower goes one step further too, recognizing that there might be a need for an early response. He empowers some of the frontline military commanders in Europe, you know, facing the Soviet Union at that time with the ability to use a first strike, uh, a first strike ability with the nuclear weapons at that point. So that was kind of a removal from the Truman Doctrine. Uh, President Eisenhower wanted a more aggressive, forward-facing first strike capability. Is that is that a correct analysis? It's not necessarily a first strike. I mean, it could be, but basically what Eisenhower does is called pre-delegation. And it's Eisenhower saying, I, the president, still have the ultimate authority about when and where nuclear weapons are used. However, under these conditions, I authorize you to use these weapons even if you can't get in touch with me. And basically the authorizations are along the lines of, if we're under attack, if you judge that this is going to be a majorly important thing to do, and there's some conditions on it, you can't just use it for some minor military objective, and it has to be somewhat proportional, right? You, you need some sort of big attack against you to justify using it back, or you're, you've had nuclear weapons used against you, right? And you cannot reasonably get in touch with Washington, or you cannot reasonably appeal to a higher authority, then you can use your judgment on whether you use these weapons. And these are especially the case in situations where the weapons would be defensive in nature. So for example, if you're in a fighter pilot and you have nuclear tipped anti-aircraft weapons and you see Soviet bombers coming over the horizon and you think that there is no way for you to reasonably get in touch with Washington to confirm whether you should save some city, you're allowed to shoot them out of the sky, that sort of thing. But it, the orders are actually pretty vague from what I've seen. So you could interpret them in a lot of different ways. And they spent several years working out exactly the, the framework for this, because it's not that Eisenhower really wanted them to start nuclear war. He, he isn't that eager, but they're so afraid that with the correct surprise attack conditions that the Soviets might be able to overwhelm the United States really immediately and make it very difficult for them to retaliate. So after after the Eisenhower administration, you know, for for uh, several years, the permissive action links. Now this th this concept uh, further centralized more of that power into the president's hands. So what are those uh, permissive action links, and then how did those play into I guess bringing that power back to the executive branch? Sure, I mean. So with the Eisenhower administration, you see not only the production of many more weapons, but also basing them all over the world. So again, Truman literally has releases the, the nine weapons to the military and forces them to keep them on an aircraft carrier near Guam, right? So that's that's not really highly dispersed. But by Eisenhower, you have nuclear weapons in uh, many countries, uh, European countries, but even and uh, in, in some Asian countries. You have them in, in some places that are somewhat surprising today, Tunisia, Morocco, Spain, Turkey. And by the time you get to the Kennedy administration, the Kennedy people are very disturbed by this. They recognize that there's a use for having these nuclear weapons near the possible theater of battle, especially these tactical nuclear weapons that would be you know, used against tanks and bombers and things like that. But they also start to worry that, well, what if somebody gets confused and uses one rashly? What if, and this is a 
one of their fears about Turkey. What if the Turks take over the base and they now have access to nuclear weapons? These early weapons don't have anything like locks on them. They don't have any means of keeping somebody from unauthorized use. If you have physical possession of those weapons, you have a nuclear arsenal. And so the permissive action links, these are basically locks for nuclear weapons. And the early ones are literally locks. They're not very interesting. They're, they, they, they look sort of like bicycle locks. They're, they're combination tumbler lock type things. They later get very elaborate. And the addition, the, the versions that are now in use are built inside the warheads themselves. They use very specialized computer signals. If you put in the wrong signal, they can potentially disable the weapon permanently. And they're just ways of ensuring that these weapons, that physical control over the weapons does not mean you actually have control over the use of them. You need both the actual weapon to use it, but you also need some form of authorization from a higher power. Well, speaking of one of those locks on the system, what is the nuclear football and what does it do? The nuclear football is a satchel. It's a, it's a big, it's a 45 pound briefcase. And you'll see in pictures of the president. We hope you're enjoying our conversation with Professor Alex Wellerstein. We'll pick up where we left off in the next episode when we resume our conversation about the nuclear football, who carries it, what it does, as well as the process for initiating a nuclear strike. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you.